Great. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the uh, Sport and Leisure History Seminar brought to you by the British Society of Sport History and the Institute of Historical Research. And today it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Professor Robert Coles or Rob Coles, who is the Professor Emeritus of History at the International Centre of uh, Sport, History and Culture at De Montfort University. Um, Rob, as uh, two years ago, won the uh, Lord Aberdare Prize for Sporting Literature for his book, This Sporting Life, which um, this paper is partly based upon. Um, but he has a, a vast body of work um, that you might be interested to look up. So he's the author of works on mining culture in the Northeast, Rob's from the Northeast himself. Um, he's also um, edited a collection together with Philip Dodd on Englishness, um, which dates back to 1986. So just at the beginning of the wave of interest in um, national identity in the UK. Um, and he's also written extensively on George Orwell. And I believe you've got uh, something coming up about George Orwell very soon, haven't you, with um, OUP. Um, he's interested in Englishness and concepts of liberty, and that's particularly what his book, This Sporting Life, is about. And today he's here to talk to us about the fight between Tom Sayers and John Heenan in 1860, which was billed as the fight of the century. So I'll hand over to you, Rob. Thanks, Jack. Okay, well, the fight of the century was <clears throat> Tuesday morning on the 17th of April, 1860. Uh, in his thick description of a Balinese cockfight, uh, written in 1958, the American anthropologist Clifford Geertz explained why you have to look through a fight in order to understand it. The men at the cockfight were there for money. The birds were fighting to the death. Geertz called the cockfight itself play but he called the gambling deep play as the men struggled to assert who they were as men of a social identity and standing. Well, whatever Tom says and John Camel Heenan were doing or thought they were doing early one morning in a Hampshire field in 1860, they were not playing. On the contrary, as professional prize fighters, they were there, in fact, they were only there to inflict such injuries on each other that the other one would be incapable of standing up like a human being. And Shakespeare described Edgar in King Lear, a poor, bare, forked animal. Apart from the money, which was 500 apiece, state money, you might think that no sane person would want to do or watch such a thing. But they did, and they do. And why they did is the subject of this paper, and indeed, in a way, the book. Sears and Heenan came into a roped-off ring at 7 a.m. prompt. Nice morning, said Heenan, the US challenger. Do you want to bet on it? said Sears, the English champion. In fact, this fight had started 12 months before in the London offices of Bell's Life, which was the UK's top sporting paper, and in the New York offices of Porter's Spirit of the Times. Sears was putting his belt, that is his recognized championship, 
up for contention. He was 34 years old, the veteran of 15 official professional fights under London prize-wearing rules, 1839. He'd won 14 and lost one. Starting off as a teenager in Brighton, where he was born, in the back lanes and at the races, then in North London, working on the railways as a bricklayer, then as a publican at the Laurel Arms, Camden. Sears had had many more unofficial fights, street fights, field scraps, holding corners, pub backyards, anywhere away from the JPs, the magistrates, for small stakes and direct betting. But now at 34, he was getting on for this malarkey. He'd already had his testimonial at St. George's Hall the month before in Southwark. And the American thought that the Americans thought that their man could relieve Sayers of his belt and his championship for not too much trouble. Before a prize fight, um, the two men would always peel or strip. Um, that is, they would remove their upper garments, usually um, uh, an elaborate dressing gown, still done actually, something uh, Lord Byron and others introduced early in the century when they did a bit of sparring. They liked their silk dressing gowns. The Turkish police, as Byron called his. But when the men peeled, everyone would take particular interest in this, in the old prize ring, because it would show how seriously they had come to the fight. In other words, whether they trained or not, whether it mattered. And in this, pugilists and jockeys shared the same urge for fitness. Tom peeled first, and he looked in perfect condition. According to Bell's life, he looked like a block of pickled walnut which is, a, in fact, an indication that he'd done the old prize ring thing of bathing his face and his body in vinegar, which was considered to be resistant to heavy blows. But when Heenan peeled, everyone was utterly aghast, not only at his marble white skin, according to Bells, but at 25 years old, he was nine years younger than Sayers, at six foot two, he was six inches taller, and at 14 and a half stone, he was two and a half stone heavier. He was also perfectly proportioned with a nose that the physiologists of the time called a celestial. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of, well, the time said you could hang a key on it. It was obviously a broken nose, but the physiologists of the time would refer to a celestial as the perfect indication of criminal habits of mind. It went with eyes too close together and low foreheads. Tom looked long and hard at his opponent, reckoned the times, and Bells said, well, he might, for they were as a horse to a hen. Heenan came with a reputation for violence. He was one of those men who have a talent for it. You might remember that wonderful Scorsese film, Gangs of New York. Um, DiCaprio, I think, 
and the wonderful English actor, um, oh, what's his name? His father was a great Irish poet. Day Lewis, wonderful film. Well, actually, um, that was based on a book written in 1927 by a man called Asbury, who was actually a Methodist minister. But to put that apart, Asbury knew about the gangs of New York. And Heenan, uh, that was his world, actually. Um, he was a Tammany Hall hard man who'd been in ruckuses with nativists uh, all his life. He lived at the Five Points intersection in New York, great Irish quarter. By day, he ran a sporting house, which we were both of. And by night, he was an enforcer. And he was quite famous, actually, in his own sweet way, um, as an athlete and as the husband of Ada Mencken, who was probably America's most famous actress and performer in the 1850s. They married in 1859. She was incredibly beautiful. He was incredibly muscular. They were the becks and posh of their day. The problem was with this immaculate contender, Keenan had only had one professional fight for the so-called US heavyweight championship, uh, all highly illegal, of course, in the States as here, where he'd fought the fellow Irish-American enforcer, John Morrissey. He'd lost to Morrissey in 20 minutes. Morrissey knew his way around a ring and um, exacted his victory. Strangely enough, Keenan, for all his strength and size, was not only not the best fighter in the United States, he was not the best fighter in West Troy, New York because both him and Morrison came from West Troy, New York, although their parents were Irish. Tom, on the other hand, knew his way around the ring. Um, he was not involved with gangs or criminal element, although the odd cross, that is a fight that's bent for the betting. He was not averse to that, it would seem. He wasn't aware or familiar with bets of a thousand or more dollars, which Heenan had been, and he had not married a leading British or indeed Irish actress. The nearest Tom got to that was when his ex-common-law wife assaulted him outside the Britannia Theatre Hoxton one night uh, when she caught and knocked his hat off and hit him in the face. He told the magistrate he didn't want anything to do with Sarah Sayers now or forever. But the real point about Sayers and Heenan was that London prize ring rules allowed tactical fighting. You didn't have to go three minutes, as now, and the 10-count knockout didn't exist. In fact, there was no point scoring under prize ring rules, and because men were fighting with bare hands, the hitting was actually quite light uh, compared to gloved hands. If you felt like a breather, you would go down on one knee. A 30 second mandatory count before you come back to scratch. If you fell to the ground with the other man on top of you, another 30 second mandatory count. And Tom at just under 11 stone was a genius at working 
these tactical encounters. All his official fights were with much bigger men over long periods, where basically he exhausted them with his ring craft and his hardness. He went two and a half hours with Jack Grant in 1852. He went two hours with Leicester's very own Nat Langham in 1853, a fight he lost. He went one and a half hours with Bill Perry, the Tipton slasher, giving away four stone in a boat off South End Pier to take the championship in 1857. Tom Box Clever. Up and down, wind and winded, knob and parry, jab and faint. Somebody, I forget who is one now, somebody in the 1880s remembers looking out the window in North London one day, seeing quickly a crowd, quickly barouche, quickly carriages, two fighters, bang, 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 over. It was Sayers and Bob, Bob Brettel. He remembered a lot of going down on one knee. So, what we got this damp April morning in 1860 in a Farnborough field. Well, Heenan had the chest, 45 inches, and Tom had the craft. The fight started at 7.29, first blood to Sayers, square on Heenan's nose, knobbing in the parlance, flapping in the crowd. Who were the crowd? Well, for a fight at 7.29 a.m. in a wet field that was illegal and was never going to happen, and nobody knew anything about it, there were 1,500 people who travelled down from London to tramp across the field from London Bridge Station in two trains, 35 carriages each, at 4 a.m. with rugs and hampers, a lot of broken noses, and a lot of long ones. Dickens's man, who he sent down for household words, Hollingshead, said he travelled in a compartment with a lord, a baronet, an MP, and a famous poet, no names. The Home Secretary confirmed it as a breach of the peace. The Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police stationed armed constables with cutlasses last issued for the Chartists in 1848 at every station out of Surrey. But none of this stopped the crowd getting off outside Farnborough, tramping to a field to be met with men with sticks, by men with sticks and chairs, where they could choose whether they were going to watch the law being broken, standing up or sitting down. It was rumoured that the Prime Minister Palmerston longed the subject of cartoons, as Jeremy's just been showing me, as a prize fighter. It was rumoured that Palmerston and the Prince of Wales watched the law being broken, sitting down. Well, 37 rounds and two hours later, Sayers is still jabbing and moving, avoiding grabs, and spitting blood freely. His worst problem is his right arm is out of action. Some people say he broke it. It's not clear. But it'd been out of action for, for since the sixth round. Sayers is too old to go on, too smart to lose, and not strong enough to win. 
Heenan, on the other hand, had been jabbed so often in the eyes, he was having trouble seeing. And what he was doing was lumbering around the ring, trying to grab Sayers and land on him. The sort of thing little boys used to do in playground fights. We called it, they called it the cross buttock. Well, the other thing he was trying to do was get a hold of Sayers, get his head under his arm, called sweet in chancery, and fib him like that. That's called fibbing. Well, it was all a disgusting sight, according to the Sydney Morning Herald, which uh, it didn't stop the Sydney Morning Herald reporting it. Well, after two hours or so, round 37, Keenan finally did catch his man by the neck and then dragged him to the ropes where it was clear for all to see that he intended to strangle him with the ropes. This was contrary to rule 28. Not that the referee recognized this. It's a bit like modern football. All the rules are endlessly broken, but referees don't recognize it at all. Well, after a bit of bedlam, the ropes being cut by John Morrissey, who was actually in Sayers' corner, the crowd surge in, the fighters collapse, and the Hampshire County Constabulary, not wanting a murder on their hands, let alone, let alone a breach of the peace, or common assault, or riot, or manslaughter, any of these things would have applied. They broke in, intervened, and broke up the whole affair. The last sight of the fighters, according to the journalists, was they were seen scampering across the fields to the railway station. Heenan held by the hand. Back in London, Heenan was put to bed for a couple of days at the Swan, Old Kent Road, where he had been training. And Sears, uh, not one to be put to bed, turned up the next morning, bright and perky, looking for his stake because he claimed he'd win, he'd won. Went to Owen Swift's public house, the Horseshoe in Titchbourne Street. Swift was a previous fighter. Actually, he was more than a fighter. He was probably a murderer because he'd, man he'd been found guilty of manslaughter on, I think, three occasions. For fighting. And at that time, when money was involved, particularly in rowing or boxing, certain public houses would hold the state money, usually paid in in 50 pound, 20 pound, 10 pound installments till it was all there together. So there was Sayers the next morning with his hand actually in a cast, his arm, looking for his money. Tom apparently did as Tom pleased. The stories are absolutely legion and went on right into the 20th century. That Tom went to a theater and sat in the front row and the lead actor threw his hat into the audience and guess, it landed on Tom's head. That he was very close to his sister, that his son was really nice looking, that his father was difficult, that he once went to a dinner in his honor, cleared his plate, got down and went to sleep on the sofa. Tom did as he liked. He rode a little dumb cob 
around Camden and basically was uh, there to be seen uh, every day. It was said that Sayers only believed in three things. One, Captain Barclay, the great ped, that is trainer, the man who had trained a whole number of fighters, partially in the magistracy who controlled his living and not at all in anyone or anything else. All know that true. Yet at the same time, he must have been aware, he could not have been unaware that he was probably the most famous man in England. He was so famous, they wouldn't let him into an Oxford college. He stood in a long line of working class plebeian heroes, not like Nelson or Wellington, but gentlemen nevertheless, well turned out, just like gentlemen stand with their feet out, not like that, like that. In print and picture and ceramics, in every pub in the country, usually on the wall alongside a fast horse or a great dog. Back to Slack and Mendoza in the 18th century, into Tom Crib, Tom Spring, Jem Belcher in the 19th. Only months before, Sayers had been presented with Tom Cribb's silver brown belt at Southwark in his testimonial. Cribb had been the archetypal English champion <clears throat> during half the Napoleonic Wars. He too had fought an American um, <clears throat> in 1810, actually uh, an American fighter called Molyneux, ex-slave, who he, well, he was losing the first one, <clears throat> but the crowd intervened yet again. Uh, he won the second one under Captain Barclay's tutorship. So he had Cribb's belt, and Cribb stood for more than boxing. Cribb in the Napoleonic Wars stood for England. Cribb was John Bull. Or maybe he was William Cobbett. Or maybe Cobbett was John Bull. It's very difficult. You get them all mixed up. I think. Crib ran the Union Arms in Panton Street in London. I might be wrong on that. Sayers had been given his own championship belt in 1857. He was the toast of the fancy. Part of a London circuit of sporting clubs. Byron sparred in Johnson's gym. Gentlemen trained straight out of the city of London. They trained it. Lunchtimes. Hazlitt wrote in celebration of fighters and their high and heroic state. George IV employed 17 prize fighters as bouncers at his coronation to keep his wife out and hypocrisy in. The British Army and Navy celebrated their exploits in exactly the same terms as prize fighters. The French under Napoleon were known for their elan, for their huzzah, for their up and at it, for the noise they made. It's famous, frightened the life out of you. The British infantry, or regiments of the line as they were called, were known for their silence, their morbidity, their stoicism. They would just take it and take it and take it. That was the job of a regiment of the line. 
It was also the job of ships of the line, which Nelson so commanded. You just had to be in the front and take it. And when the enemy broadsided you, all the crew lay flat on the deck because those shots came right through the ship, whole length. You could see Russell Crowe do it in Master and Commander. Only Russell Crowe doesn't do it because like the whole officer class, he stands with his officer comrades on the quarter deck. Midshipman, age 11, up to the captain himself, they would stand there in full regalia and take it. It was the thing the upper class were meant to do. It was probably the only thing they could do really well. Wellington called it fair bludgeon work. The fancy, that is the cognoscenti who surrounded boxing, called it bottom. So when William Hazlitt went to a fight on Hungerford Common in 1821, he starts by saying, Reader, have you ever been to a fight? Then he takes you there. This is the fight between Bill Neat, 19 Storms from Bristol, and Hitman, the gas, really a middleweight uh, from London. He worked in the gasworks, but Hazlitt makes it brilliantly that against the great bulk of Neat, great name for a big man, Neat, you have this man who is gaseous, invisible, everywhere. And the whole point of Hazlitt's The Fight is, if you've never been to a fight, you should. Not for the blood of it, but for the liberty of it. This is men doing as they like. This is what the aristocracy claim they can do. Hazlitt goes and sees the law broken because he wants to. The fancy and the people are doing the same. Breaking the law just for the liberty of breaking the law. And actually, when I wrote this book, I was really tempted to say every day for about 10 years now, I cycle across Victoria Park in, in Leicester to work. And every day I go down a path saying no cycling. <laughs> and I really enjoy doing it. But my wife took me out of doing that. She said, you might get a, a letter. This isn't John Stuart Mill's liberty, if you think about it, which was 1859, the year before. Mill's liberty is a calculation about other people. This isn't about other people. This is what Tom Stoppard called English liberty, doing it because you want to do it. Well, Sayers died on the 8th of November, 1865, from TB and diabetes in Camden. He was 39. An estimated 30,000 people marched in his honour and attended his funeral at Highgate Cemetery, where he now resides, with Lion, his dog, standing guard over his grave. I recommend you go there. John Heenan died, also aged 39, also from TB, at Green River, Wyoming Territory, 
eight years later, 1873. No sign of Ada. By this time, the prize ring was fading under the weight of its own corruption and intimidation. The aristocracy or that sporting side of it had lost control. They'd always had a kind of hauteur that controlled things up to a point, as had the fancy, from which we would get the word fan. But other things were happening to mid-Victorian England. Public life was becoming more sensitive, more private, and there were powerful civic rivals stepping in officially against the unofficial. So there were new boxing institutions, the National Sporting Club in the 1890s, the British Boxing Board of Control followed that in the 1920s. The university colleges, would you believe, were boxing. Oxford and Cambridge actually start punching each other in the head pretty soon. They're dying to do it, of course. Ships and regiments. Boxers are now representing a ship or a regiment, or a part of the East End, or a part of Liverpool. The Amateur Boxing Association was founded, I think, in the 1880s. Schools are into it. The London Board Schools produce the first great amateur champion of the period. You can see these institutions muscling in, or should I say shouldering in, and the old prize ring, corrupt, probably criminal, losing its aristocratic Hauteur and connection is on the run. <clears throat> Tom Brown's school days in 1857 is really a wonderful example of this because, as you remember, Tom gets into a fight uh, with Slogger Williams, is it? And this could have been Sayers and Heenan, only it was three years before. And actually, Tom says somewhere that you must keep fighting, even though you can't see. Little did he know that Heenan couldn't be able to see. But there you have a public school, you see, taking on boxing as, a, as part of the um, ennoblement of the boy, of the self. Now, 50 years before that, Lord Shaftesbury's brother had been killed in a boxing match at Eton where he's fighting a bigger boy, he'd been actually killed for hours of a pummeling. And the boys got, the boy who did it got not guilty. I can't remember what the exact, anyway, he wasn't punished for it. But this is different. This is, um, this is the, um, the spiritualization, I suppose, or the moralization of not only school, but boxing. Queensbury rules come in in the 1880s. Um, and they change it altogether. What they do, of course, is they take the old gentlemanly way of fighting, which was called sparring. That is, you don't really try to hurt each other or hit each other. You have big gloves and um, there's no going down on one knee. If you're flattened, it's 10 seconds and it's finished. And you can win by points and there's weights. So you don't get heavyweights fighting middleweights, you get heavyweights fighting heavyweights. The new weight divisions, no grabbing, no holding, no falling on a man, gloves, doctors, points, three minute rounds, no dropping, changes everything. 
But that, as they say, is another another story. To quote uh, Tom and Dom, to be fair, as they keep saying to each other, the rest is history. Now, all the chapters in the book, as I try to explain to the British Sports History Society in August, they all go roughly like this. I start with Geertz, deep clay, and then I try to debouche into wider meanings and identities, and maybe even finally institutions. There's hardly a football result or a championship belt in the book. This might sound all planned, um, but as I told the society in August, like Mike Tyson said, um, yeah, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the mouth. The book started out with Dick Holt as my mentor, as sport and the English hero. But in the end, um, Dick didn't have time to write sport and the English hero, and, and I didn't really want to, because I felt I was dealing with something that had already been written, in a sense. And the seeds of dissatisfaction with sports history had already been planted on Monday nights in Babalas Bar, sitting with Mike Cronin, who was a kind of, he was kind of fed up with sports history, but he didn't want to write any more of that stuff. He kept telling me, he kept telling me what the problem was. The real problem for Mike was it all being done. Why keep doing it? So that was Mike. I got a dose of Mike every Monday and I was listening. And then there was a Ross McKibben throwaway line at Demont, where he just said, why sports history about everything but sport? Where's the action? And that stayed here in my head. Um, Ross's problem then was with what Darbon calls sportization. Everything around sport, but not the actual activity itself. There's nothing wrong with this, but I just didn't want to do it. So Cronin and McKibben were the life belts I was hanging on to while I spent three months wondering what to do with the Leverhulme. Can you believe anyone could be so stupid? I also clung on not so much to a life belt, more like a bit of driftwood, a remark of Tony Mason's, which was that it cost sixpence to get into a football league match in the olden days. That's about as vague as it was to me. I clung on to that. No one had ever told me it was sixpence to get in. And sixpence I worked out was a 40th, roughly, of a working class wage in the 1880s. That's two and a half percent. It's a, it's a lot. And I thought, I need more of this. Where did you stand? Who did you stand with? How much did it cost? How long did you have to wait? Did you shout? Did you get into fights? And then, of course, there was Dick Holt, who really had done, laid the groundwork for me. He had told me that sport was essentially about identity. Dick's sport in the British is actually about identity as much as sport. So I clung on to him as well as McKibben and Cronin and Mason. And then finally, I completely didn't expect this. And this came from Jeremy, who, who's sitting there who told me I had to read Karl Ove Nausgaard, 
Norwegian novelist, six volumes. He said, you have to read them. He's read them in Norwegian. He didn't ask that of me. But I read six volumes of Mein Kampf by Nausgaard, My Struggle. It's autobiographical novel. And what I got out of that was, if you read the detail of a life long enough, you capture the rhythm of the life, the mate, the getting up, the seeing to the kids, the making the porridge, putting the kettle on, making the coffee, first cigarette on the balcony, and so on. Now Scott does this again and again and again. And it's not a waste of time. Because when you've read the six volumes, you feel you know this life. So what was happening was I was beginning to get very irritable about theory and ideology. And I was beginning to think that the worst thing I'd ever written was ideological. And the best thing I'd ever written was how things actually work. Rhythm. I'd come from a social history tradition, you know. I was one of the 60s generation who thought E.P. Thompson was the last word on how to write social history. And that had made me interested in the history of the non-literate. That is those who'd left no record, those who didn't think their opinions were worth writing down or even speaking, those who told you who they were by what they did, not what they thought. And that was really Thompson, it was my tutors at Sussex, Eileen and Stephen Yeo, there was my supervisor at York, Gwyn, Alfred Williams, who really lit up the night sky and showed me that regional working class history could be exciting. And there was Jim Walden at York, who wrote, I think, the first serious history of football. Or maybe John, maybe Tony Mason did. I'm not sure if it's Jim or Tony. Yeah. And, you know, Jim was a young lecturer at York in the 70s. And Gwyn, who was... Superb, I mean, he's a colossus, even though he's only five foot five. He was the star of social history at York, but he couldn't help resist, he couldn't resist a joke, a bit of a laugh about this guy. Do you know, this guy's writing a history of football. Not proletarian order, not Gramsci, not Lenin, not strikes, but football. But actually, Jim was ahead of the game there. So I came from that tradition. Now Scott was teaching me that detail tool told you more than ideology. Mason was giving me a life belt of sixpence. Cronin and McKibben were saying, come on, we can do something different. And then I dived into the primary sources and found that the newspapers were really a nightmare. We, you read the Newcastle Evening Chronicle on a Monday, and it's got all the weekend sport, but you make sense of that. It's everything, pigeon racing, air rifles, swimming, ped, a bit of football, God knows what code. And it's all called sport. I wasn't getting any pleasure out of this. I got far more pleasure out of knowing who was in Sayers Corner. I'll tell you who was at Sayers Corner. Two seconds, not two seconds, two men called seconds. And they were, according to the Times, they looked like wicked keepers. So we can just see them like this. Then there was Gideon, the manager, Fuller, the ped or trainer, 
Cunningham, Sayers Powell, John Morrissey, the American champion who had whooped Heenan and was looking for it, doing it again, even with an Englishman. Morrissey, by the way, is amazing. He was utterly hard, probably criminal, and went on to make a fortune on Wall Street and ended up in Congress. There was also a three foot six tall fighter called Jimmy Holden. What world does that open up? And a man called the Birdman, who was in a cape making queer halloo sounds as they fought. The theatricality of boxing, the slap, the makeup, the fooling around didn't have to wait for Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury. All this, and I haven't even talked about how to actually write it word on word. Anyway, I've got five more minutes. Is that all right? Yeah. These were just my ideas and preferences. I finally got into it when my wife said, why don't you just go and look at the document somewhere that you've never been but would like to go? So I went to the Lake District with my walking boots, spent two weeks in Calderbeck, working with the son of a colleague of mine, Matthew Constantine, a Carlisle record office. And he just put a great bank of records in front of me about Cumbrian fox hunting. Bang, the light went on. This is not like Leicestershire fox hunting. This is on foot half the time. And it's, it's poor farmers. It's not the Aristos. So Matthew, thanks. I then came back to Leicester, knew what I had to do. I didn't have to fear difference. I had to embrace it. So Leicestershire record office saw a lot of me, as did the corn hunt minute books. Squire Delal gave me permission to read them. So we've got the red aristocracy of Leicestershire up for the day, driving the Ferraris of their day. And I've got John Peel plodding across Calderbeck on a pony in gray. Fantastic. And I got it, you know, I begin to see that what's happening here is the wonderful, joyful expression of liberty. My wife comes from a horse racing family. Her grandfather was a trainer and a jockey. And she told me the joy of riding, the pure ecstasy of a, of a good horse, especially for a woman, to the freedom of it. And then last night I'm watching Happy Valley. We all are. And the guy gets out of prison. This is James Norton. Is he called James Norton? He gets out of prison. He says, can't oh, that's why, but that's apart from the fact. He goes into the Yorkshire Dales. He gets off his bike and he stands. And he, he does this, overlooking the dale. He's free. I got it. I knew I got it right. To be free, you need land. And if you have land, you're free. So the aristocracy did it that way. The poor took their land of liberty another way. And that was called poaching. It was their land. They claimed it as their own. And so chapter two, Bonnie Moorhen, is about the poaching wars in Weirdale of the 1810s and 20s. That was just happenstance. 
a wonderful um, archivist called Christine Hiskey, 40 years ago, told me that in Durham County Record Office, there was this cache of papers about poaching wars in Durham. She said, you must read them, Rob, one day or other. And I did. I went straight back. I read them. And I knew I could set that up against the fox hunting. They're claiming the same liberty, only it could send them to Tasmania for the, for the privilege. So I worked Durham County Record Office with Q for that one. The next thing, of course, came along was I'd already worked through Englishness and political identity on common law. The idea that who we are doesn't come from above, it comes from, like the law, from the ground up. So I wanted to do something about what constitutes us, literally, as a people or a borough or a village or a club. So, and I knew Stanford had a great history of bull running. I knew that from a book by Malcolmson 50 years ago. So I went to Stanford Town Hall, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty Animals at Horsham, um, and I worked on the suppression of bull running in Stanford, 1834 to 1840. They were claiming similar liberties to the hunters and the poachers. Only it was urban and it was put down by the Met and the Dragoon Guards and Queen Victoria. I then extended that belonging and liberty and suppression argument with help from Jeremy, who'd done his PhD on Leicestershire sports and games. He took it not just into sport, but into games, into play. And Emma Griffin had done the same with her book. Then there was Keir D.M. Snell, my colleague at Leicester, Keith Snell, who'd done wonderful work on the parish. I knew the parish was really important. And I worked out that the parish was actually the core of English sport. And if you undermined the parish and broke it up, you undermined sport and broke it up. So, oh yeah, I was external at Lancaster then, and my host at Lancaster, great university, was Michael Wynne Stanley, and he told me in Preston Record Office, there was this, the Butterworth Papers, where this guy had gone around all the Lancashire parishes in the 1830s and reported on them. This is in the heart of the Industrial Revolution. Someone is reporting on sport and games in Lancashire. Couldn't be missed. <clears throat> and then of course, I knew that the breaking up of the parish wasn't just about land, and industry, it was also done from the inside out, not just the outside in. And I'd already worked with miners on Methodism. I knew how tough the Methodists were, how unflinching and relentless. And if you had a little pocket of Methodists in your parish, you had a problem. Not only if you were the vicar, but if you were organizing the sports, because the Methodists did not accept sport, at least not to the end of the century. And I knew a guy called Stephen Hatcher who built the Anglesey Group Primitive Methodist Museum in Cheshire. And I worked with him and with Stanley and Jeremy and Keith Snell, worked that way. Oh yes, and Newcastle Central Library too. They had masses of stuff on the river because the breaking up of sport is not just about land. It's not just the parish, 
It's the river too. Then I discovered that the River Tyne actually was a kind of parish. It was controlled by the corporation of Newcastle who controlled everything that happened on it. And there was a struggle over who controlled the river. So I worked on that. By this time, I was really riding high and taking the fences. I got a fellowship at St. John's and worked on the John Johnson collection in the Bodleian. This is the most perfect collection for social history in the country. Thousands of scraps of paper, beautifully restored and preserved. And what I read there fed everything, fed all the subjects, particularly the boxing. So my chapter on boxing got some muscle. Uh, but it also told me a lot about public schools, the new moral world of the public schools, the moralization of sport. Uppingham was close to Leicester, so I got into Uppingham sport with Jerry Rudman. I had to get the girls in, of course, so that took a lot of trips to Cheltenham, Cheltenham Ladies College, Rachel Roberts. Rachel Roberts, is that right? She was a great actress. Anyway, there is a, there's a woman at Cheltenham who really served me well, the curator. Rachel Roberts, who gave me masses on Cheltenham, women's, ladies, girls, sport. Um, I went to my old primary school and read the logbooks <laughs> of the 1880s. This was a board school on Tyneside. <clears throat> read about little kids being strapped for playing sport in the, in the yard. Um, and I was really doing well there. Janice Norwood, one of my PhD students told me all about Tom Sears and the, the theatre. And out of that, I got into military and naval history um, because everyone was taking Sears as their exemplar. <clears throat> Uppingham told me about cricket, never really my sport, but I was forced to take the pill of cricket. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and saw everything there. And of course, I had to get football in which was always my sport. And I went to the Football Association headquarters in Soho those days and read the original minute books uh, of 1863. The Women's Library at the London Met is great for sport as well. Wonderful pictures of girls and young women holding oars like this with boaters on. I split the New Moral Worlds chapter into two because I realized one part of it was about schools moralizing sport and spreading it to the nation. The other half was about being young, just about being young. And the model for being young, which actually fed into our time at university, did it not, was sport. The blazer, the scarf, the devil may care. The, we were all bloods. True. Not Tory bloods, Marxist blood, but we still went around doing what we wanted to do. And there was a wonderful quote too from, from the wonderful Larkin about being young. This is being young, assumption of the startled century. So that was it really. And um, all this world, I hammered in the cards between 2016 and 17. My God, that was hell. And then I took the cards in the drafts, 2017 to 19, and finally published in 2020. 
The British Sports History Society called it compelling, evocative, and unique. And no one was more surprised than me, <laughs> I can tell you. Thank you, Rob. That was good. How do you follow that? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but we open up the floor to uh, questions. And um, we'll also take questions from Zoom. If you want to uh, ask a question, could you just put in the chat or raise your hand to indicate that you want to ask a question? But first of all, I'll ask if anybody in the room has uh, Raph. Yeah, um, very thoughtful. Um, this is kind of quite a big question in a way, but I was really struck by what you were saying about Gotham Kidding saying sports history is about everything except sport. And I think that's absolutely right. But that's to some extent, I feel that sports historians still feel that we have to justify ourselves by saying we're not really writing about sports. Um, and that also somebody like um, me or other others who are kind of more at the start of our careers are having to almost there's a sort of uh, there's a sort of imperative for us to present ourselves still in the academy as not sports historians as kind of general historians and um, I mean was that ever was that ever a concern for you did you ever feel that in order to be taken seriously I'm talking about your career as if it's in the past tense I don't <laughs> <laughs> but I mean you're obviously very very established well very well respected and have, um, and have done a lot and so I'm just thinking about was that ever a concern for you in terms of how you were perceived or yeah um let me think now um hmm. The thing is, I once uh, met David Morrissey, you know, the actor, um, <clears throat> at a conference, and um, we we got on quite well. And I said to him, "But would you read a, a treatment I've written or a sport film on sport?" This was about the first British or English or British superstar, Huey Gallagher, who played for Newcastle. Mm -hmm. Amazing story. Anyway, I wrote this treatment. And I sent it to him, and he took me the honour of reading it. And he wrote back and he's saying, it's really interesting, Rob, but it, none of this, none of this can be filmed for the sporting core. We've, we talked about this, didn't mm. we, in the, in, in the park. It's just, it's just so difficult to film. So it's so difficult to write about that sporting core, the activity of being a great winger or a great batsman. In fact, if we did try to write about it, it'd be quite short, wouldn't it? Larkin could do it better than us. So I think Ross's point was more rhetorical, that you have to, you can't just neglect the actual activity of running and jumping and spinning and seeing, but you can't write a book on it because actually it's something you do, not rather than opine about. You get Tyson Fury opining about his boxing, it doesn't last long. So I think Ross was being really clever there. He was saying sportization is what we do, but don't forget the activity at the heart of it. I think it was more a poetic call than an academic one. And, you know, in the book, to be fair to you and your question, I do try and address the actual activity, yeah. but there's an awful lot of the other stuff too. And actually in the end, I actually say, this is what the book's about. This thing, sport, is one of our civil cultures. It's everywhere. So yeah, 
So I think that's one of the reasons why the Amadeir judges are so impressed with it, though, is your ability to start with the micro and end with the macro. That was the intention. Yeah. But you then, you always look back to the again. Good question. Bill? Well, I think what I like about your book, well, I would have said this in less of confidence, but other people got in close, but um, is in fact, and really it relates to, uh, to Russell Chippen's comment, because what uh, the, the, the thing that struck me when I started to work on sport history was that nobody addresses the obvious question that every every kind of commentator or sports journalist asked at the end of a race or how did it feel? <laughs> how did what well, they often tell them how it felt, of course, which is yeah. they say you must have felt wonderful when you did when that happened, etc. Um, and how does it feel is, is what actually unifies that what brings those different parts of it together. Yeah. Um, and what your answer your answer is I feel free. Isn't yeah. It? Mm. Absolutely, you're feeling a kind of freedom. So, sorry, this isn't a question. <laughs> that's, that's what it seems to me that you achieved in that book. You do actually get a sense of feeling that comes through, um, even from people, even in the sense that people are not expressing it in a literal, literal form, as it were. But you get, a, you, I suppose, you, that's quite poetic, really, isn't it? If you use that word a couple of times, it's a, you, and that's quite liberating. Historians could be a bit liberated, I think, by literature, amongst other things. And that's and it because it does help you address those questions. But maybe if we do more of that, we don't we do less of the other stuff that we do now. Um, but I, but it's very hard because you've got to sort of somehow show that that's relevant in a way that meets all kinds of different criteria, which are really imposed on us from sort of outside that sort of literary. World and being imposed on us in a sense by social science rather than rather than well, rather something which addresses the emotional. Well, this is what's wonderful. Thank you, by the way, Gil, for a question that was almost long as long as the paper. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, this is the, the the great thing about history. It's what I love about history. It makes me feel free. Mm. It has no set template there's no one way of doing history mm. i feel as free as a bird when i start writing something i mean might not get published and of course the academic journals past and present room just next to mm. insist on form mm. but i still feel i can it can be what i want it to be all i have to be is convincing and i don't feel that i never felt like that with social science mm. I think it was Gavin Kitchen who said he spent too long reading social science slabs by no one in particular, about nowhere in particular. And I used to feel that with these great American transactions of the American sociological. Yeah. So history is a wonderful subject in that sense. Yeah. Um, do we have any questions from people in the Zoom room? Uh, I'd be. I'd be very willing to listen to somebody. If you, I don't know. People are there. Um, in the meantime, maybe I'll, I'll go back to a more specific thing than talking about generalities of history. But obviously, during the 19th century, there was quite a tension between Irish, Irishness and Britishness mm. and Irishness and Englishness. Was there any kind of rhetoric around that in the fight between Sayers and Heenan? 
Yeah, there should have been, shouldn't there? But surprisingly little, actually. Um, Keenan um, planted the Stars and Stripes in his corner. And Sears planted the Royal Standard in his, available from his agent for 10 and 6, if you wanted one, plus picture, photograph. No, uh, there was very little. Do you think um, that's a class thing, that it's yeah. middle-class anxiety I about? I don't know. It was a, a, a noticeable absence. Heenan was seen more as an American. Mm. Um, yeah, especially in 1860, you'd expect a lot more mm. than that. But, but there again, you know, I mean, Sayers came from a very dirt poor background too. Mm. It'd be hard to see Sayers as an imperial swine, wouldn't it? Given his background. We've got a comment. Oh, sorry. Just got a comment in, in the Zoom. Uh, thank you for a great lecture. As a non-sports historian, there seems to be a number of parallels price fighting shares with the way rave culture in the late 80s and 90s was organised and movement mm. outside the law. Are you, are you deep into rave culture? <laughs> Can you draw out the parallels no, for us? No. <laughs> I've seen pictures of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's like H.A.P. Taylor who's asked about America, which he'd never been to. He said, I've seen it. <laughs> sorry. That's sorry. That's all right. um, Jeremy, I think you've got... Yeah, I, I also want to return to the, uh, the micro in the 1860s. Um, I was struck when contemplating this bias night by how, in a sense, old-fashioned it was in 1860. I mean, some of the things surrounding are going more transatlantic mm -hmm. element. They all go there by the railway. It, it's very the popular press is crucial to the the marketing and the coverage mm -hmm. uh, of all this. You just mentioned that there were photographs. Mm -hmm. That these are all very modern. Mm -hmm. And yet, price and as in, as maybe is the notion, the rather historical notion of saying this is the part of the century. Mm -hmm. Which, re, which has a rather, by that time, rather modern view of how you should think about history yeah. and tradition. And so I wonder how far a lot of all this is a kind of nostalgic performance, certainly on the part of the audience, yeah. um, maybe of the aristocrats whose freedoms were not what they were by the 1860s, but they had been the period of the Napoleonic mm -hmm. War uh, and, and so on. And, but it's a, it's the end of something. It's not the it's not the lively uh, celebration of a particular culture. And hence people like Palmerston are perhaps going along because they can remember this yeah. kind of stuff from when they were young and they want to see what's happened to it now. And what they see is rather degenerate um, sort yeah. of actually with an unsatisfactory, unsatisfactory result and certainly won't meet the criteria of the emerging gentleman Martin. Martin. Mm -hmm. So I, I just want to, if we could reflect a bit on that, on, on this, this sort of, I think, slight postmodern view of what we've actually got here. This is a performance in, from everybody's mm -hmm. perspective. Yep. I didn't really ever get that myself. I didn't spot that, but it's a great theme, actually. I got it a little bit in here when I talk about new moral worlds and the collapse of the gentlemanly control, um, their social control, their class control. Um, it was beginning, I think I even call it a crisis of masculinity, although that kind of phrase doesn't normally come to my lips easily. But I think that was happening in the 1850s and 60s, Jeremy, because the things the 
aristocracy was supposed to do well, they were doing badly. Um, and I suppose the most catastrophic example of that is the Crimean War, which was a disaster. Um, I mean, the British Army, this was, this was the class that did the fighting. This was the class that Wellington said, this is the gentleman. He will get you out of a problem. If, you have, if the country has a problem, he'll get you out of it. Killing is what they did. And they did it badly in the Crimea. But, but I, I want to get to nostalgia for popular, for the popular classes as well. This is the era of incipient trade unionism, of the educated working man, of uh, working man's colleges, um, all the kind of active works. Tom, Thomas, you stuff we were talking uh, about earlier this afternoon. And yet here you have the, these old-fashioned mm -hmm. people slugging out, coming from the, the least reformed, the least Methodist parts of, uh, of um, urban culture. Well, firstly, I think nostalgia depends on a kind of longing. And I think the longing for the past is you're going to get it more powerfully when you think you've lost the game when you've lost the show. And I think the aristocracy, the masculine, you know, they were losing it. They weren't just losing it in the army, you know, the civil service, Northcote rebellion reforms, reports on public schools, they were disastrous in the 1850s and 60s. Eton is investigated. Um, we know the, the middle and working class are pressing parliament for reform all the time. So what I'm saying is, in a nutshell, I think that longing for the past may well have come from the collapse of confidence in being a gentleman, an aristocrat. That's possible. As for the working class who attended, we don't know if it was the working class, seven o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday. I don't think the working class, if they're working, are going to be there. I think what you got was this sporting fraternity, the, 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 the fancy, you got them. You got the leisured classes, they were there. You got the journalistic classes, they were there. As far as fighting is concerned, you know, stand-up fighting, the way these two guys fight in 1860 is what men were doing outside pubs yesterday, mm -hmm. or at least almost yesterday. I can remember as a kid, it was called the honor fight. Somebody says outside, you've got to go. And when you get outside, you take your shirt off, you might take your jacket off anyway, and you would have to fight, basically stand up. I don't know about now, thank goodness, but I know it, there was a period right up into the 1960s when fights outside, pubs in car parks went on like that. So I know they fought, but they didn't much like fighting much or professionally because they wouldn't be able to work. You just need a broken finger or lose an eye and you can't work. And if you can't work, you starve. So professional fighting was only for professionals. Amateur fighting was only for a certain class until later. And then people got fit enough and strong enough and the ring was ruled enough to allow a certain kind of modicum of amateur boxing. But it wasn't like football, it was just so dangerous. And actually, as you remember, the whole point of the FA, which met round the corner here, was about taking the violence out of it 
because working men didn't want the violence. They couldn't possibly tolerate it for their work. So great question. Never occurred to me that there might be a nostalgia element in Palmston and Dickens. Uh, and I should have seen it really. Um, have we got any more questions? You've got the last one, Amanda. Money. <laughs> That's a good one to finish off with. Well, no, and Tommy probably did, yeah. It didn't actually say it. They, they were making fun of it, really, that Heenan was in bed and Tom had his hand out. Apparently, they said it's the only salute Tom understood that. Well, thank you very much for a really rich exploration and i do recommend the book to people i read it over the winter and it's a very good read as well it's very erudite oh, it's in paperback so bargain um, oh, okay. there <laughs> um just before we thank you once more our next uh seminar i did write it down somewhere is alec hurley um on the 13th of february and that will be a zoom meeting and Alec will be presenting from America. So oh. if you do come along to that one, bear in mind that um, he's way back behind us. He's doing it at breakfast time or maybe pre-lunch. Um, he'll be talking about 19th century American sports clubs and sociability, I suppose. Um, but look on the IHR website. You'll be able to see the write-up for that. Um, he gave a very good paper at conference, I think. So it um, should be a really good paper for us here. And finally, um, thank you once again, Rob. Um, really good job. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everyone, for coming along on Zoom. Um, we really appreciate your support. And um, we do hope that you tell your friends about uh, what we're doing here. But for tonight, I'm going to say goodbye. <laughs>